This is the podcast where you meet people who are not similar on the surface. They're not on magazine covers, and they all have different jobs. But like all of us, they've made big choices and ponder the big questions. Learn what makes them tick and what we all share as fellow human beings. This is Get to Know an Average Joe. I think that for many athletes, the, um, the discipline of training and taking class requires you to be devoted and committed. It requires you to prioritize your life. Those are the things that are universally transferable. Now we are going to meet and talk with Andrew Roth. We are in Sacramento, and this weekend you are celebrating your 25th anniversary. Congratulations. Thank you so much. It's a very exciting occasion. Tell us about how it is to spend 25 years with one person. Wow, that's a great question. It's rewarding. It's enriching. And I find um, kind of life-affirming. Uh, to spend so much time in one relationship with one person and change and grow together. It takes a lot of work. Um, however, all that work, sort of as if you spend 25 years cultivating a garden, you you know end up with a really rich reward in terms of very mature plantings or very mature love and, and commitment. I think a lot of cliches about 25-year anniversaries are when you say, oh, been laughter and there have been tears la 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 it's describe some of the laughter and some of the tears that you have experienced during the last 25 years with kevin so um in 25 years there's lots of occasions to celebrate together for example kevin and i both finished well i finished my undergraduate degree we both finished master's degrees together we have moved several times we left seattle came to sacramento um, we've seen our careers advance, um, several job changes and promotions over the years. So many wonderful things to celebrate, um, seeing each other grow and, and succeed. And then, you know, with the tears, there are growing pains in every relationship as we sort of let go of habits and parts of ourselves that used to kind of make sense and that used to be a part of our self-identities. But as we get older, we find maybe those things, those traits, those habits, those activities that we that we thought we needed to engage in to be who we were, we decide we can let go of. And Exa- example. So, um, you know, well, one great example is smoking cigarettes. You know, we both quit smoking cigarettes while we knew each other and, and sort of the, you know, going out to bars and, and hanging out late and... You know, as we've gotten older, we've, we've let those kinds of activities go and um, do things that are quieter and, and healthier. And you know, we've gotten involved in fitness together. And, you know, sometimes one of us changes a little bit before the other and there's a little tension or a little, and then the other one catches up. And, and that's over the course of 25 years happens a number of times and is sometimes difficult to adjust to. However, once we make the adjustment and put the work and give each other the support, uh, really strengthens and solidifies the love and commitment we feel. You talked about the career development that you've both experienced, but you had a career in common when you first met. Talk about dancing and your history with dance. You know, um, dancing is how we met because we met in a ballet class. 
So I tell people that we met at the bar. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, the B-A-R-R-E. How very clever. And, um, you know, Kevin, being six years older than me, stopped dancing shortly after we met and, and kind of moved on to other things, went back to school. I danced for several more years with Spectrum Dance Theater in Seattle. And, um, you know, that gave me a grounding in fitness, a love for dance and music that Kevin and I share to this day, even if we don't actually dance physically ourselves anymore. We appreciate the arts. We appreciate music. It's one of the defining characteristics of our relationship in terms of activities that we enjoy to do together and still get a lot of fulfillment out of. Are you a supporter of the arts? Do you financially support dance companies? Yes, we do. Um, Both the Sacramento Ballet and the San Francisco Ballet. And um, both of us have taught and choreographed for Kevin for his high school and me for local dance studios in the Sacramento area. So it's a really big part of who we are, both together and as a part of our community. What was little Andrew like? Did you grow up dancing? Did you want to be a dancer when you were a young boy? You know, not so much as a, as a little boy. I wasn't really aware of dance. However, um, I was a swimmer and experienced a lot of success athletically. And then when I got exposed to dance in high school, I immediately fell in love with it. And swimming had sort of stagnated. Um, I went from being a state champion to being third in the city because <laughs> everybody caught up with me in terms of growth and speed. And so that's a different trajectory. Yes, it's not what you expect. <laughs> it is. And so I um, I got into dancing and I just loved it. And I had some talent and I just worked and worked and worked and uh, was able, fortunate enough to be able to have uh, something of a career for a little while. Really appreciated that opportunity. And then you came back to swimming and you, in fact, went to the... Gay Games, didn't you? Yes, I did. I swam in the Gay Games. I swam at Masters Nationals. I've also swum at the International Gay and Lesbian Aquatic Championships over the years. Um, swimming, unlike dance, is something that is easy to do into one's older older age. <laughs> it's, it's a lot less demanding physically. I mean, it's you know great workout and everything, but um, there's low impact and, and really enjoyable. And in fact, the people that I swim with are a big part of my social circle today. We all kind of have similar values and, and you know, similar kinds of professional accomplishments and, and really special. How did you do with the gay games? Um, you know, the gay games in the 90s, I, um, there were some phenomenal athletes. I was lucky enough just to be able to participate. At Masters Nationals, I was in the top 50 in the nation in a couple of events, and, and that felt like a real accomplishment. But um, in terms of the, the competition, I, I wouldn't rank myself as an elite swimmer, but maybe a cut or two below that. Um, but I, I don't compete as much anymore just because the level of effort required to train to sort of sustain that level of intensity or, or hard on the body. Mm-hmm. And after you know 40 years almost of being physically active on a regular daily basis, I find that um, I need to kind of train with an eye towards sustainability as opposed to excellence in competition. Right. The long game is more yes. important. But still, you learned so much during this, during your dancing career, during your swimming career, in the competitions that you go through. How have the characteristics that you've trained up through swimming and dancing contributed to your career in government? I think that for many athletes, 
the um, the discipline of training and taking class, going to practice, whatever sort of the the thing one is doing, um, requires you to be devoted and committed. It requires you to prioritize your life. It requires you to prioritize your time, manage your time so that you can train and be ready for competitions and also get the other things you need to get done accomplished, whether that's schoolwork, work, career work. Um, and so the dedication, the time management, the discipline, those are the things that are universally transferable and I think really help make people successful. And there's also kind of a, you're part of a team, whether you're on a swim team or you're part of a dance company, you need to know how to rely on other people. They need to know how to rely on you. You have to be there for them, both physically and emotionally. And that's, you know, it, it's sort of working it's in government uh, is, is a lot about teamwork. And so there's, there's great transferability between the two. And it's like going to leadership school, though you don't know you're going to leadership school. Exactly. And it's, um, I find, you know, from a leadership school perspective, because you're physically engaged, you, you know, it's, it's not an intellectual exercise. You need to kind of be able to let go of your mind and listen to your body and be really focused on kind of an instinctual level in terms of what's coming up, what's necessary, where you're at in time and space. And that's helpful in terms of, I think, working, you know, as part of a professional office environment, when people, there's, you know, so much of what we say is communicated non-verbally. And so being aware of who you are in time and space and, and sending appropriate messages and appropriate responses in the long meetings, in the boardrooms, I mean, those are the things that can really make a difference for you professionally. And it's, it's ironic. It's not really about sometimes what you say. It's about how you're acting and how you show up just physically in the moment and the expression on your face. Right. And how are you filling the space with your shoulders or your posture? Do you sometimes wish that you could teach non-dancers these cues? Or are you able to transmit any of that in your personal leadership to the people that you lead? I do. You know, I tell um, body language is something that I work on. As, as, part, as a member of the executive team, I have a number of directors who report to me and senior leaders in the organization. And one of the things I focus on is, okay, you know, you've gotten to this level through being an expert, through your hard work, through being a subject matter expert. You know, what kind of will take you to the next level is being aware of what you're saying. You know, a great example was there was a director who, great guy, um, you know, somebody was complaining that he was rolling his eyes while I was talking. And, um, you know, it, I know this, this gentleman is, is very supportive. He's a great team player. And he wasn't rolling his eyes at me. He was rolling his eyes because what I was talking about is just one of those, you know, kind of organizational things that's difficult to deal with and causes a lot of, of unrest because it's, it's politically sensitive. And so he was just sort of rolling his eyes at, oh, man, this is... And so, he meant to be sympathetic. Correct. And yet somebody interpreted it as being disrespectful. And so it's a great opportunity for me to say, you know, you have to be conscious of what your body is saying and not just sort of, you know, you think you're being sympathetic, but you have to bring it up a level. Right. Even, even in a meeting room, you're on stage. Always. Mm. Always. You, you are can, on... can you tell us what is your job? You work at the state of California as what? Yes. So I am the executive officer over benefits and services for the California State Teachers Retirement system. We're the second largest public pension fund in the United States and the 
branch that I oversee is the largest branch in that organization. So of the 1,100 employees, I've got about 450 of them in my branch. Which is a perfect job for you because even before you had this job, as lo- I mean, you've been a great coach to me personally about thinking about retirement and how are you planning ahead. You've always done this since I think your 20s you were thinking about what is in your pension fund. Why are you like that? I'm not sure. <laughs> my mother would tell me that, you know, uh, my my grandmother and grandfather Roth, my, my dad's parents, were both very financially astute and savvy, and it was just part of who they were. And I've always been interested in making sure I had some savings, and that's kind of, you know, a value that my family has passed on. And I really turned it into a career after I finished graduate school and got into financial education and you ever reflect on how interesting that is that you picked up the the grandparent Roth um, tendency toward financial planning? Yes, I do. You know, Grandma and Grandpa Roth, when I was growing up, you know, they weren't necessarily the playful grandparents. You know, they were the ones I went out to nice dinners with. And, you know, as I got older, I really started to appreciate the lessons that they had to offer me. And um, I, I, I've learned a lot from them, which has made me successful today. Are they still both living? No. uh, Grandfather Roth, unfortunately, passed fairly early on at 65. Uh, Grandmother Roth passed last year at 97. And um, my relationship with her was so rich and rewarding. Learned so many lessons, not just about finances, but about life and love and family. She really helped make me the man that I am today. And were you able to tell her that? I told her many times in many ways how much I valued her and valued our relationship. I would send her flowers, Valentine's Day, Mother's Day, her birthday, and Christmas every year without fail. That's a a terrific amount of appreciation to show to the previous generation. Is there somebody that you're mentoring in the younger generation that is showing you that kind of appreciation? I mentor some people professionally at work, but I have not been engaged in a relationship with somebody of the younger generation who kind of goes beyond the typical boss-employee mentoring relationship. But you're Uncle Andy Pandy to a number of young children. (laughs) I am. I like the kids, and, and many of my dearest friends have beautiful children whom I treasure and just wish that we live closer because then I think we would have the opportunity to forge closer relationships. We treasure you back. I just want to track back for one more question because you mentioned your mom. You moved your mom to live in a mother-in-law apartment attached to your house. Describe that process and how that works for you today. Mom moved out here about 11 years ago. She had retired and was... um, Emotionally, I think it was difficult for her to live alone. She's a fairly anxious person. And um, so, and you're an only child. Correct. I'm an only child. Uh, my husband's parents live in Texas with his, you know, close to his brothers. And so we thought, well, let's, you know, have mom move out. And we ended up buying a duplex together. And, um, you know, that's rewarding. It's nice having mom next door because she was sort of a, had a, an interesting career as a criminal justice attorney. Um, I think that she played no, no small part in my own success in terms of showing me what a high-level professional acts like and her expectations for my intellectual success and educational achievements. I mean, she always knew, you know, work to your full potential. I learned a lot 
from her and, and, and kind of in talking to her about my opportunities and work situations. Um, she has an interesting and high level perspective that helps me reach that next level myself in terms of, of perceiving what's going on around me and having, um, you know, kind of a realistic perspective on events. Good role model professionally. Is she also a good role model for what retired life is going to be like? Well, you know, we have fundamental differences in our personality. (laughs) I'll take that as a no. Yeah. (laughs) She's more introverted and, you know, an ideal day for her is, you know, typically spent alone reading and and maybe doing a little work in the yard. For me, you know, I'll go about setting things up a little differently. Not having children, I find, you know, you really need to think ahead about what's next and how to position yourself for a successful transition because what happens today isn't necessarily what you want for tomorrow. Give me an example. What do you mean? So, you know, like today we have a a lovely two-story home, you know, in a busy part of town. And, you know, as as I get older, I I don't want to be in a place that has stairs. Um, You know, I want to be in a place that has some grounds to walk on. and, And so I think people often think, well, we'll, we'll worry about that when we're really old. And it's kind of like, you know, if you wait, and this is based on personal observation and professional experience working with aging Americans, that um, if you don't plan ahead and start taking active steps years before you need to do something, once you're in your 70s or 80s, most likely those things won't happen because you've lost, the people lose the ability to make sound decisions, to set themselves up, to do the work that it takes to get rid of all the stuff and downsize and move somewhere and make new connections. That's a lot of work and it takes a lot of time. So thinking ahead and and taking proactive steps to plan is something that, you know, my husband and I are already talking about. One of the favorite questions on this particular podcast is to describe a favorite day. So what are the ingredients that you put together to have just a terrific day? Well, a terrific day for me almost always starts off with a swim workout with my beloved swim team. They're fun and terrific, and it's just I get a good workout, so I feel just grounded and stable and ready to take on whatever comes. I've got a great energy going. And then, um, you know, I, I like working in the yard with my husband or maybe doing a little shopping, um, maybe stopping by to say hi to mom. Um, maybe getting a little work done that makes me feel um, like I'm accomplishing something. Then if I had the opportunity to maybe go out for dinner with my husband and some good close friends of ours and have a, a drink and a glass of wine and you know really connect socially and psychologically, it's, that's, that's a sweet day for me. Thank you very much for doing this podcast with me. It's my pleasure. That's Andrew Roth multi-talented survivor of ballet school. On our next episode, meet his husband, Kevin Little. Kevin and I talk about also being a dance survivor and celebrating overcoming other challenges with skin art, among other things. To me, the tattoos represent pain that I chose and that creates something beautiful. Kevin Little is next on Get to Know an Average Joe. Tell me at Dodiax on Twitter what you think and hope you keep listening. And now, if you'll excuse me,